Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. I'm Ryan Cooper. Pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, David Livingstone Smith, um, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of New England, um, author of many books, most recently on humanity, dehumanization and how to resist it, which came out this summer. And uh, upcoming book, Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization, which uh, I'm not sure if there's a date on that, but it's coming up soon. So, um, yeah, welcome. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, one, one little correction, though. It's on inhumanity. Oh, gosh. I, <laughs> it's what I thought I said. But um, a lot of people, you know, mistake. yeah, I. <laughs> You know, and I, and I don't know if you've listened to a lot of our episodes before, but I literally cannot get through the introduction of anybody without mangling <laughs> their name, their title, the, their book, or my own name. Uh, frankly, something's got to give. And so, you know, unfortunately, uh, your book was... Don't, don't take it personally. It's not, it's not you. It's Ryan. It's uh, not you. It's him. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Thanks for coming on and subjecting yourself to our, our dehumanizing uh, rhetoric. Um, but yeah, uh, maybe just to kick us off here, you you could you could s- start with your definition of dehumanization and how you know kind of how people have been you know a bit sloppy with their terminology and the way that they maybe use dehumanization in you know a contradictory or, or different. Uh, fashion. So what is your view of it? And, and, uh, you know, kind of what's the broad, broadly speaking definition there? Right. So that's a really important place to start because the word dehumanization use is used in so many different ways, both in the academic literature and in the vernacular. What I mean by dehumanization is the attitude of conceiving of others as subhuman creatures. Uh, It's not like there's a right way and a wrong way to use the term. It's just accumulated lots of different meanings. So it's real important anyone who talks about this to specify what they mean. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so to to dig a little bit deeper into that, you know, you you tie uh, dehumanization into – racism and a view a view of racism as as like an essentializing view of uh you know human groups real or imagined and so like can you you make an interesting argument in the book that racism and the sort of like hierarchy of of races will be around with us will be around as long as there is race so could you dig into that a little bit sure so uh, this is one of my more one of my more controversial positions, which is that racism is baked into the very notion of race. So if we, let's back up a couple of steps. Race is important for dehumanization because groups of people who are dehumanized, who are thought of as less than human creatures, are generally first racialized. But to understand what that means, we have to look into the concept of racialization itself. So One of the problems when people talk about race is they are often uh, much too local. Race works somewhat differently in different places due to different historical, economic, and political circumstances. 
a notion of race that applies across the board has got to be able to encompass diverse examples of racialization. So I see the notion of race as having three components. One is when a group of people is racialized, they are regarded as fundamentally and inherently different from us, whoever us happens to be. So it's very important that you, you attend to fundamentally and inherently. Race is a life sentence, right? Part of the logic of race is that it's immutable. Second, a racialized group of people is not merely other. They are less than. They are lower on the hierarchy of humankinds than we are, than our kind is. And third, that status is transmitted by descent. So one acquires a race through one's ancestry. Now, I guess there's a fourth component of, as well, which is really important, which is races are created, they're manufactured out of relations of domination. So they are historically contingent um, categories. Yeah, that's right. And maybe as a, as a sort of concrete example, uh, <clears throat> the, the philosopher Charles Mills talks about how you know, you have black versus white in the United States. But if you go to his uh, home country of Jamaica, you know, for him to say that he's he's black in Jamaica is wrong because he is brown in Jamaica because there's a completely different racial categorization scheme. Similarly, you know, if you go to South Africa, you know, the 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 groupings there, you have, you know, blacks. You have whites. Whites are kind of divided into two races, the English and the Afrikaners. And and then you have a, a colored, which is not offensive in the South African context, a capital C with a U. And that is a sort of mestizo, a, a, a mix of uh, uh, a black and white that has taken on its own kind of like identity. And so like like. As you say, you know, the, there there's no coherent definition of race that applies. Like it's a, always historically contingent, right? And it and it excludes and and uh, includes vast chunks of people based on completely arbitrary history, right? Correct. Yes. And so any uh, notion of race which can do justice to this diversity needs to be able to include, on one hand, say, for example, the racialization of black people in the United States and the racialization of Jews during the Third Reich, right? So a focus on skin color is too local here. Mm. We, need, we need something which is going to give us a picture of how race works across the board. And it's interesting because you do a great job in a very accessible way to unpack the complexity of the interrelationship uh, among the, the kind of socially constructed categories, as well as, as how that functions in terms of oppression and exclusion, uh, and how we make the easy mistake sometimes to think that skin is what matters, simply because skin color mattered in certain contexts historically and today. Um, and, and I like to teach my students, uh, because it's so hard to 
on one level, convince people that it's that race isn't biologically real, that it's socially constructed um, because of how it operates in a very real way, right, socially and in, in our reality. So so it's a tricky thing. So I, I like to say um, one example that might not have been mine. I, I forget if I read it somewhere, which is that it's not that uh, black Americans were put in the Jim Crow car. It's that those who were put in the Jim Crow car were considered black. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and so, so, so it's, it's a hard thing to unpack, but uh, I think it's very important because this leads to your point about the, the function of racialization uh, that, that makes others other, right? And, and then makes them other in a way that is on a racial hierarchy less, less human than we are, but still human. And that then can morph into not human at all. And that's where things get really dicey and lead to genocide and so forth. Is that right? That's exactly right. So to to rephrase what you said initially, uh, oppression leads to race. Oppression is is the engine of racialization. And races are are manufactured in in that sort of way. We see it again and again and again and again. Think of the, well, think of the, the notion of blackness, frankly. I mean, West Africa was in in the 16th century, as it is now, the home of many diverse peoples, who who would not lump themselves together as one homogenous group. Uh, when Europeans started getting involved in the trade economy, th- all of these diverse people who would have identified themselves as as Igbo or Akan or Fulani or you know whatever ethnic group they belonged to were homogenized as black and black meant enslavable to Europeans. Mm. Blackness legitimated uh, in the, the enslaving of these human beings. Race has the same kind of, pa- it conforms to the same pattern as dehumanization. The logic of race is very much the logic of dehumanization. So just as when people are racialized, they're regarded as a, an inferior kind of human being, but are nonetheless in the human category. Dehumanization just takes it a step further, excludes them from the category of the human. And that's why I refer to dehumanization as racism on steroids. Right, right. It's a great phrase. Yeah. Yeah. And so <clears throat> you, you, you've gotten a little bit, I, I probably should have brought this up at the beginning you know, why, why are we talking about this uh, uh, dehumanization as a problem, you know, leads to bad things, I think is a pretty a decent summary. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, why this type of thinking, you know, the, the essentialism and then pr- proceeding to uh, dehumanization has been you know, so popular in so many different contexts in ways that that might, you know, seem from the outside to be completely inexplicable. There's an attraction there, you know, why, like how people could could convince themselves or be convinced to commit horrifying atrocities, you know, against, uh, you know, the, the in the Rwandan genocide, people who are, you know, had been neighbors and, and, and barely distinguishable from outside for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, you know, nevertheless, you know, hacked them up with machetes and like similarly with, uh, you know, Nazi, you know, like ideology 
thinking that all the bunch of poor Jewish peasants in Poland were somehow, you know, subhuman vermin and simultaneously hyper intelligent, uh, you know, architects of all politics and history. And so they must be killed. So, like, what is attractive about that uh, in the in the human psyche? Yeah. So it, in well, <laughs> uh, let's let's start out with the 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 problem of of fear um and and the sources of dehumanization and and then and then i'll kind of back into what you you asked me about sure um dehumanization is not something in my view that arises from within it's not like a bunch of people suddenly think to themselves or gradually come to think to themselves these others are less than human. And this is one of the gripes I have with the psychological literature on dehumanization, which is 99% of the literature. Most disciplines have ignored it entirely. Mm. It gives one the impression that dehumanization is something that's just in people's heads. Now, it is in mm. people's heads. Mm. But dehumanization, in my view, is a psychological response to political forces. And so we can't really properly understand it by just looking at what's in people's heads. We have to look at what people's heads are in. We have to look at the, the propaganda or the embedded ideologies that influence the way that they think. And, okay. and is that different from all psychology? Because in a sense, in my view, all psychology is structured, right, by the social, by the political, by the economic. It's, it's, you know, it's conceptually distinct, but practically enmeshed, isn't it? Uh, well, yes, it is, but the the uh, <laughs> there are problems of disciplinary purity and problems of methodology <laughs> here, right. right? So, if you read the average psychology paper on dehumanization, there will be some lip service paid to the Holocaust or the Rwanda genocide, um, but it doesn't go further than that. And from that point onward, it tends to be very, very internalistic. And I think that's a big, big mistake. I cannot think of a single example of dehumanization which was not elicited by political forces coming at people from the outside, you know, scaring the shit out of them and exploiting certain psychological vulnerabilities that we all share that allows us to think of others as less than human. So... You, you were asking about the attraction. I mean, why is this appealing? Why do we gravitate to this? Well, it's really very similar to why we gravitate to notions of race. Um, the big picture is, in my view, is that human beings are a highly, highly social species. I mean, that's not controversial. Biology. Any any biologist or physical anthropologist is going to tell you this. We are yeah. we have sociality to an unprecedented degree. You have to look at the ants and the bees to find organisms that are as social as we are. And of course, our lives are much more more complex than theirs. Any social species has to have powerful inhibitions against uh, lethal or even sublethal aggression. This is a truism in biology, and the reasons are obvious. I mean, you can't maintain a social way of life, a cooperative way of life, if you're r ripping each other's throats out. 
<laughs> it's true. No, I mean, hy- hyenas well, are really looked down upon in the in animal kingdom for eating their siblings. Not really, not really cool. Yeah. No, it's not cool. <laughs> so in, it's social animals, you know, they'll get into fights and sometimes it gets out of hand. But generally speaking, aggression is respe- restrained within the community. Uh, we human beings being highly, highly sociable extend our inhibitions against lethal harm beyond the immediate community. And this has been the case for a very, very long time. We know this. But we're also really smart and and gifted. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only you. Appreciate it. Appreciate Not it. Not me. It. Flattery will get you everywhere, David. I, no, please. I on. can't even read a name of a book, frankly. <laughs> You you are not alone in that. I, for some reason, this is a mistake which is very frequently na- made when when introducing my book. So so don't feel bad about it. You were saying sorry. I was saying I was saying that we were gifted with imagination and the capacity for you know instrumental thinking, and we're capable of recognizing that. Gee, you know. It would be really great if we could, like, get rid of the that other community over the other side of the mountain. We could steal their stuff. We'd get their resources. We could enslave them. It would be great for us. Now, the two things that I've just said are clearly there's a tension between them, right? On the one hand, there are these inhibitions against spilling human blood. Um. And there's a really interesting growing literature on this. On the other hand, there's a recognition that, you know, this could be pretty good for us to, to, to do stuff like that. In my view, over the millennia, we develop various social gimmicks for selectively disabling aggression. Uh Dehumanization is one. It's not the only one by any means. So a lot of people get me wrong there. They think they say Smith thinks that dehumanization is necessary for the commission of atrocity. No, of course not. That that would be a ridiculous thing to say. There are various ways from using, you know, mind altering drugs to to rituals to religious ideologies. Dehumanizing propaganda is just one, but it's a very important one. So dehumanizing propaganda is such that those whom some one or ones in positions of power wish us to harm are represented as less than human creatures. We are told, although they look human, they're not really human, deep down where it counts, and they're not merely other. They are dangerous in some kind of way. They are vicious predators or they are traditionally unclean animals and they must be dealt with. Uh, So this does two things. First of all, it takes your foot off the brake, right? So the inhibitions against committing acts of, of terrible atrocity are relaxed. It's also motivating. After all, if you're confronted with dangerous creatures that are out to get you, the idea is you need to either kill them or, or 
incarcerate them or oppress them in some way, render them safe at the extreme by exterminating them. So that kind of propaganda, because of the way it plays on the human consciousness, is immensely, immensely powerful. And, and it's, it's in the hands of skilled propagandists, it's very easy to be a sucker for it. Right. You, you point out how um, not only fear, but also desire and often ideologically narratives of salvation to be rescued from the danger is, is, is very, very common. So, so there, and that, that seems to tie into something pretty human, which is to feel like you're participating in a heroic, you know, battle to, to kind of save yourself and, and the ones you consider, you know, part of your tribe from, from, you know, disaster. So important. Genocides tend to be highly moralistic. The genocidaires are out to save the world. Um, you know, it, the, the idea that, that, that the Nazis were cackling evil people doesn't represent their mindset. I'm Jewish, by the way, just by the way. You know, they were, they were out to save the world from yeah. what they regarded as terrible, terrible evil. And if you, you can go right down the line with genocide. That's right. My students often miss, I think it's very important how you point out that, first of all, we shouldn't demonize, uh, you know, the villains here. We shouldn't demonize them because they're also human. But but also, um, the idea I think is foreign because because people think of them as monsters, whether the slaveholders or the Nazis. They don't realize that the Nazis and uh, the Confederacy, they thought they were the good guys, Right. The, ideologically, they thought they were the heroes. People forget that about uh, both, I think. I mean, but just look at Gone with the Wind, right? Their, their civilization was was rescuing us. Like Alexander Stevens wrote the cornerstone speech to, to, to kind of rescue us from the, the fault of the declaration. Right. And the, the Nazis thought they were going to, you know, the future was going to be great because of this project. Um, and then, you know, you think of Trump and make America great again. Right. It's, it's very key to see that dynamic be- between the exclusion, the oppression, the othering and the, the, the aspiration to greatness. Right. Yeah, that's right. So the, the you know, one of the things I've had to focus on quite a bit is the appeal of certain forms of propaganda and the way that they address certain vulnerabilities that we have just in virtue of having a, a human mind. And, and that's, that's absolutely right. I, I mean, I was particularly impressed, and I say a little bit about this in the book. The next book goes into much more detail about this, with the writings of a guy named Roger Monicarl. Monicarl was a, well, he had a PhD in philosophy. He had a PhD in anthropology, and he was a practicing psychoanalyst. And he was invited to Germany in 1932 by a friend of his, a diplomat named Arthur Jenkin, to, co- to listen to Hitler and Goebbels at their big rallies. And he wrote a fantastic paper published in 1941 called The Psychology of Propaganda. And it, it was based on his observations of, of Hitler and Goebbels, but he intended it to be a broader analysis of authoritarian propaganda. And in his analysis... There are three steps. First, the the propagandist elicits despair and oppression in his audience. Uh, In the case of Germany, you know, we were humiliated by the 
Treaty of Versailles. Uh, we've been brought to our knees. We've betrayed the great destiny of, of our race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're the laughingstock of the world. The next move was to elicit paranoid fear. Yeah, but it really wasn't you. It, it was the Jews and the communists. They're responsible for the, the, the travails of Germany. And so, you know, if you get hooked into the first movement, you're a sucker for the second. It's a bit of a relief not to be at fault. And then the magical solution, you know, join us, join the Nazi party. We're going to make Germany great again. Only I can do it. You know, it, it was because of, I was so keyed into that work that actually when Trump announced his candidacy and he came down that escalator and I listened to his speech. It was exact. I mean, that was the playbook. It, it was extraordinary. Um, depression, paranoia, magical salvation. And it's in that paranoid movement, that middle movement, where you often get this dehumanizing propaganda. Right. They're, they're not merely villains. They're 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 essentially criminal. They're demonic. They're bad to the bone. Or more explicitly, they're animals. Hmm. Yeah, there's this epistemological uh, strangeness that you point out because there's this essentialism that is so certain epistemologically, and yet it's kind of unclear how you really know if someone's black or white, because you, you can't just tell by the skin color. You can't just because you could be wrong. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's this, cause it's this inward essence. That's not actually empirical that, right. So, so maybe talk a bit about this bizarre way that they mystify race and yet make it essential. Yeah. That's, that's so important. Uh, people often speak as though appearance as, as though phenotype is constitutive of race that's not how racial thinking works. If that were the case, passing would be unintelligible. Um, so the way that racial thinking works is that the race that you are is determined by an unobservable essence, something deep inside. People used to say in the flesh or in the blood and blood supplies, by the way, were literally segregated in the United States and in Nazi Germany because of this idea that race was in the racial essence was in the blood um, or nowadays people say in the genome generally people who know nothing about the genetics of, of human diversity um, so the the idea here is this racial essence is typically expressed in a certain kind of appearance a certain kind of phenotype so the phenotype is under normal circumstances diagnostic of the essence. Just as, you know, if you've got a cold, well, a sore throat and sneezing isn't constitutive of the cold. Those are indicators, they're symptoms. So, so we can make an inference from the symptoms to, the, in this case, infection by a rhinovirus. In the case of race, which is totally fantasy, of course, because the notion of race has no biological basis whatsoever. The idea that, well, people look a certain way and you can kind of read off the essence from that. But that's defeasible, you see. There is a, the relationship is, is a loose one, just as you can be infected, say, with COVID, but be asymptomatic. Right. Similarly, 
the logic of race is such that you can belong to a certain race but be asymptomatic. You can be black but look white, for instance. Um, so the attribution of race ultimately, ultimately, I think is based on ancestry. Because it's the essence that's supposed to be transmitted down the bloodline. This is something that people don't think about enough. Like, why should ancestry be important? Well, ancestry is regarded as important because there's something that's supposed to be transmitted from one generation to the next. And that pattern of thinking is exactly the same pattern we find in dehumanization. You know, if to, yeah, yeah. This this brings me back to a, to a question I uh, I I had earlier. I've I've got, I've got written down here about uh, you know we talked about how uh, the idea of race uh, it, it it kind of necessarily implies race racism and um, it it led you know it led me to. I mean, just a natural sort of uh, thought that occurred to me was how the kind of hegemonic, quasi-hegemonic uh, liberal discourse reach race, which is which is as you know something that is real in the world, even if it is you know sort of imposed on people, like uh, you know the idea of like standpoint theory. That if you are, you know, quote unquote, really black, uh, you have a you have an access to a certain type of knowledge, a certain type of perspective, which is not only like privileged, but irrefutable, you know, in a certain context. And like, I feel a little bit uncomfortable uh, 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 sort of arguing against that. But on the other hand, you know, in 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 the case of like that argument in particular one one which can literally be cheated like like you're just saying that this is this by definition cannot be refuted uh you know you've seen certain you've seen some people like taking advantage of it people who are you know people who are white you know quote unquote uh, uh pretending that they are black and so so that they can get a certain type of very narrow social prestige in the context of i think typically academic you know contexts and uh, so something that, you know, like most in, in I, I think it's fair to say the overwhelming majority of other social contexts, they would not try to do that. But like it's a thing that happens and it's a little bit strange. And so I don't know. I mean, just sort of like your your thoughts on on the the kind of liberal view of race as something that 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 exists and matters in the world and and the sort of like possible way to get past it by some way or another okay so so on, on these matters i often defer to my spouse who is even more radical than i am and my spouse is jamaican and she like me doesn't believe in race we're both race skeptics but suffice it to say that her face is a map of west africa right now, I have to say that because sure. there are white Jamaicans and Chinese Jamaicans and Indian Jamaicans and, right. and so on and so forth. I, um, gee, you know, it, it's certainly a fact that people are racialized. 
That is, they are regarded as belonging to a race and they are treated in a manner which is supposed to be appropriate to their membership in that race. And many people growing up in a society where that is baked in ideologically to the culture come to identify with that attribution. Um, but of course, that falls well short of justifying a claim that races exist. Just as it would fall well short, to use a well-worn example in the philosophical literature, to say that uh, witches existed because people were witcherized. Um, so, you know, I, I think if, if you really take a good look at these ideological structures of race, they are monstrous, they are toxic, and there, there is no justification for them. Now, that doesn't mean, as I point out in the last chapter of my book, where I try and talk around this a little bit, that it doesn't mean, first of all, that people are not varied. Of course they're varied, right? We are a diverse species. That's different. Actually, this is a point to pause on a little bit. Race and phenotypic diversity are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Race is a folk theory of diversity. The idea of race is, well, you know why people look so different and these differences are geographically linked? It's because there are a small number of pure types of human being. These are the races. And everyone on Earth is either a member of one of these pure types or a mixture of, of two or more of them. That's that's the notion of race. So we need to take these things apart right away. Um, well, let me ask, David, can I, can yeah. I, can I ask yeah, about yeah, that? Because on. I think it's interesting to delve into what exists that's socially constructed and then what, what exists, as, as a philosopher might say, that's, you know, out there, right? Or that, that as you talk about, is natural, that, that exists outside of human creation. Um, and insofar as race is, we can agree, is socially constructed, um, as is money, and, and therefore functions away by human convention and agreement, um, the, how we deal with the fact that the use of race is, it functions to oppress, right? It functions to ex exclude. Um, you, you have this, this dilemma because so if you look at, say, like uh, black power movements or uh, various ways to empower those who have been oppressed by, by actually doubling down on that characterization in a way to fight off right the, the abuse of people that are categorized that way, um, that comes into conflict strategically with those who say we want to, to get past the idea of race itself, right? So how, how do we think through this? Because if you look at like Black Lives Matter, um, the, the idea is that if people really um, concretize their particularity and talk about their difference as real, that's supposed to be a, a strategy to, to make all differences uh, equally human and, and universalize people, but not erase difference. So, so how, do we, how do we deal with that? Well, you know, that's a question I'd love to be able to answer <laughs> in practical terms. And, and actually, I'm kind of pessimistic about it. I, we, certainly, we certainly we don't need race for that. Uh, we can talk about people who are who are racialized. We can talk about African Americans, which shouldn't be a racial 
term. You, we can talk about the African yes. diaspora. There are many ways of talking which don't reflect a commitment to the folk metaphysics of, of race. However, the, the, the concept of race has such a powerful grip on the human imagination that, that I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty pessimistic. Can I just dig into this? Because, you, you know, the, the argument about race, um, that it inevitably leads to racism, and then that can morph into dehumanization, uh, is coupled in, in your book with, with the idea that, that race itself as a kind of social construct operated even before the term or the concept was identified as such, right? And I think that's, that's very important to, to your argument. Um, but, but if, if the idea of race seems to, to come with racism and that leads to dehumanization, and then before the idea of race itself existed as such, how, how do we, it seems like we always have this othering that leads to oppression, even if we don't call it race. So, so help me understand the, the causation that's tied to the ideolo ideological and conceptual uh, construals, because it seems like you're identifying not just like when the Irish were, you know, were, were treated uh, as different and not just, um, you know, you know like pre-colonization, pre-capitalism, uh, all kinds of things that seem to be othering that could be racialized. How, how do we understand this human instinct uh, in a way that, that can help us really address what's causing, um, you know, the, the oppression? It's <laughs> a bit convoluted of a question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, I'm just because I'm trying to understand because it seems like if 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 race was invented as a concept and that leads to something, then maybe we can undo that. But it seems like also you're pointing out to the same kinds of dynamics that pre-existed the, the modern invention of race, right? Sure. Yes. So we don't need the word race for there to be racialization, right? So so when Aristotle claimed a long time ago that there are these people who were not Greeks who were barbarians. And those barbarians were essentially inferior to Greeks because they didn't have the full complement of rationality. And therefore, they were natural slaves. And you were doing them a favor by actually enslaving them so they could benefit from the superior rationality of their Greek masters. He was racializing, in my account, of what race is. Um, you don't need the word we don't, you don't need uh, a, a word which is translatable as race in order to have the notion of race. Um, the notion of race itself is simply a tool of oppression, in my view. I, I want to quibble with the Aristotle point just, just in brief, because, I, I mean, it, it's, it's debatable what he was up to in the politics. Uh, but, but certainly a reasonable interpretation, uh, from my reading at least, is that, you know, his epistemology is, is mostly empirical, and, and he says, you know, it's, it's kind of unclear if there's such a thing as a natural slave, but if there is, then it would be better for them, right, to be the slave to the master, because he's got this teleological account of human flourishing, right? Um, but, but he was very careful to say that, like, 
empirically, we can't see it. And that does relate to what you're saying about racialization Indeed. very interestingly, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think part of his caution was like the, the way that people justify oppression, uh, because most slaves back then were prisoners of war or a conquest, right? And, and he wants to say, well, that's conventional slavery. And, and sure, you're going to be quick to justify that this way, but that's not the same thing if there's such a thing as natural slavery. And so there's almost a way you could look at it as he's un- trying to undo this justificatory, oppressive, you know, approach to things. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I'm just trying to find a way that we could like, uh, you're trying to be really nice. To him. <laughs> it's probably because I'm Greek. I'm Greek. And I see him as one of my, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's a man of your own race. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> I, I, okay. I have a kind of, I, I have a kind of thought, you know, coming from someone who is not a philosopher or a professor of, of any kind, um, but ju- just, you know, thinking about like notions of identity and, and race and like the sort of like constructed, like political communities and so forth, you know, it's like, I, I see, you know, why people come up with things like standpoint theory and, you know, like deferring to people's lived experience and that sort of thing, uh, is because like of all of the ways that people have, you know, uh, trample all over folks that were sort of at the bottom of the social ladder. And, um, you know, it, it, it strikes me as not, uh, uh, at least like, uh, you know, prima facie impossible to imagine a sort of like different type of identity in which, you know, say African American and, you know, it's kind of like, like, white American kind of got dissolved into a different category of just like American, like, 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 you know, or, or like, and there's a lot of baggage there, but sort of imagining a, 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 uh, you know, a country in which like all of the various immigrant parties kind of like slowly came to regard like their cultural heritage as where, you know, sort of their immigrant forebears had come from and like those things being you know, more or less equivalent and just having like sort of different traditions and so on. And, and in that sense being like, okay, I'm celebrating my Lederhosen and my, you know, Oktoberfest and you're celebrating your whatever you've got. And, you know, we can kind of like cross pollinate and in, in that way, making it such that, you know, people who are now, you know, considered white, sort of doing what what some people would sort of say cultural is cultural appropriation like really enjoying hip hop or something maybe is a like positive development perhaps i mean like you could certainly do it in a very you know clumsy and offensive fashion but to just say that like i you know because to me the benefit there to, you know, if you're talking about trying to construct an egalitarian human identity, which includes everyone, is to say that, like, yeah, you know, we're all people here, and like, you should sort of be culturally sensitive about the way that you talk, you know, about like people who are not like you, people who have a different life history, and so on. But like, you can, you know, to, to you know, Frederick Douglass is part of my heritage. I, I think that's actually true. I actually believe that he's he's someone I identify with, a, a hero of mine, uh, you know, and like he he was born a slave. Right. And, and 
like I recognize is, you know, he lived a very different life for me, but nevertheless, like I, I regard him, you know, at least to some degree, maybe not in the same way as an African American would, but to say like, yeah, he's, he's American. He's part of the American heritage. And that to, to, to me to like, uh, maybe kind of quibbling with, with your idea of, of, I mean, it's not exactly races, but to say that like sort of different fluid categories of people, uh, that, that, that kind of can cross pollinate and are, and are on a different, uh, kind of playing field. And, and that, I think the, the benefit of that to me would be to replace the category of white with something that has like a sort of content to it. Because this to me seems like the most horrible part of a racial categorization system. It's like if you're, if you're putting, you know, if, you, if you're doing a, a, a dominating, you know, schema of races, white, black, yellow, red, whatever, and white is at the top, what is the content of white? The content of white is that it's not those other things. It's empty. There's nothing in there. And that I think is part of like one of the, one, maybe one of those like kind of psychological factors that makes, you know, uh, the dominant class so susceptible to, you know, these types of like propagandistic, uh, you know, narratives and so on. And I uh, am completely talking out of my ass here, but I'm curious to think, you know, like, <laughs> What should suburban white people be listening to, uh, you know, Dr. Dre? That's my question. Why not? Just, Why not? <laughs> just, I'm okay, just kidding. People, any people should listen to whatever appeals to them. Yeah. And uh, look, rejecting race isn't rejecting culture, it's not rejecting heritage, it's not rejecting roots, it's not rejecting any of that important good stuff. Right. It's rejecting yeah. a kind of metaphysics which is ultimately founded on oppression and hierarchy. And, and it's rejecting getting suckered into believing that stuff. How do we do that without, so I, I'm not a big fan of, of the white privilege framework because I think it's a bit confused and, and it, it confuses things as often as it illuminates. But, uh, but I do have, so, so usually some white students will, will push back when I'm teaching about structural racism um, and they will like cite Dr. King and they'll say, but I want people to be judged by their character, you know, not by the, their skin color. And, and, uh, and so, so th they want to pretend that we're already living in a post-racial exist, right? So, so they, they want to be blind to the reality of how race is, is oppressing people by, by appealing to this kind of post-racial idea that sounds so great. So how do you, how would you, <laughs> so how do you go about debunking the reality of race without giving in to that problem? Right. Well, I don't debunk the reality of racialization. I just debunk the reality of race. Right. Sure. Yeah. People are racialized and people are oppressed and oppression is a problem and racism is a problem. Although as, as you know, in, in the book, I'm, uneasy with the term racism just because I don't think it's politically useful anymore. It means too many things. It's too deniable and so on. But, you know, that being said, yeah, these are all problems and it's, it's foolish to ignore that. And, and th this whole thing is part of the toxicity, in my view, of, of the notion of race itself. And that, and, and that notion is just so 
particularly in the United States. My God, it's so embedded. It's so pervasive. We can't just magic it away or wish it away. Uh, a lot of yeah. the education of my students in my course on race and racism is getting them to, to understand just how pervasive this is. While at the same time, offering them the view, among other views, that this is a this is a, a horrible, toxic ideology which has no place in a in a decent world. Right. And you do point out how educating with, with theoretical clarity can help, right? For for people to understand what's actually happening in the world, and that can be a, a source of resistance. Uh, as skeptical as skeptical as you are, it, so so uh, you know you have these problems of race. Race and racism are, are kind of used in so many different ways that it becomes confusing. Um, but but you could clarify for us how, how you treat racism and how it's not about hate. And, and, and then maybe we can move towards, you know, some of your intersectional analysis, too, to understand uh, transphobia and, um, you know, sexism and ableism. Um, because I think clarifying these things theoretically can be, a, you know, a tool for us to use to, to educate and, and uh, transform. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that the reduction of these kinds of attitudes to hate impoverishes our vocabulary, our conceptual vocabulary for understanding things that are really, really, really important to understand, right? So it excludes so much. It excludes contempt, for instance. And I think we should distinguish between these two. It excludes terror and envy, and all these other attitudes. I listen to a lot of, well, it's becoming more and more difficult as they've been excluded from various platforms, but I listen. I, I used to listen to a lot of white supremacists and white, what, the, what they call themselves, white advocates, or um, and, and so on. And really just calling that hate is really blocking any understanding of what's going on there, right? Mm. So, so look, if we want to dismantle something, it really helps to be able to pop the hood and see how it works. And although it might feel good to just say, this is hate or this is racism without any qualification of that, of that term, and uh, it might feel good, it's not helpful, mm. right? So... And this is why I make pretty sharp distinctions to get on to the second bit of what you said between dehumanization, ordinary or garden variety, racism, ableism, transphobia, sexism, and so on. All these things have their particular dynamics. And they're, they're all really important for us to address. But we, we, I don't think we can address them effectively by lumping them all together. And, and, you know, just saying they're bad, right? Right, right. What's going on in these things? Well, you know, why do people believe these things? Why do people uh, indulge in practices informed by these beliefs and so on? Mm. So we need to really attend to the specific phenomenology of, of all of these forms of, of, of toxic ideology and bigotry. Well, just to follow up on that point, um, you... You you talk in a, a a chapter or two about propaganda and and about media in particular, mm. and you you mentioned that you know a sort of 
necessary component of of most sort of genocides or or or, or massacres and so on is some kind of uh, uh, mass communication. You know, you had the the radio, whatever it was in in Rwanda. You know, you had Julius Stryker in in uh, Nazi Germany. Any number of right wing radio hosts today, and I, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't recall f- from reading if you if you necessarily sort of take a side on the European versus the U.S. Uh, kind of uh, uh, like divergence on how this sort of you know hate speech, for lack of a better word. I mean, like like genocidal propaganda, you know, or, or extreme racism. How that should be uh, approached, or like for example, in Germany. If you use Nazi iconography or you, you know, like call for like certain types of things, you can be like put in prison or, or, you know, your publication will be shut down. You'll be forcibly prevented from doing that sort of thing. That is much more difficult to do in the United States from the state, even though, you know, as you say, a lot of platforms, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and so on, they have done you know, even even though there are a lot of very extreme right wing views on these platforms, they like there have been certain steps taken, you know, to ban certain accounts, certain personalities. Whether you you know, whether you think it it is a good idea to sort of take a certain set of views like uh, Holocaust denial, uh, explicit Nazism, explicit genocide, you know, genocidal rhetoric and say that, like, you are not allowed to say this like in any sort of public forum um, or not. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's so hard. Um, uh, my sympathies are with banning calls to violence. Um, yeah. That being said, I'm very cautious about the restriction of speech. Mm. Um, now, <laughs> I'm cautious and I'm doubtful. I mean, if if we look at the Nazis, they were always complaining in the early days about their free speech being limited and 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 stuff like that. And the problem with with mass communication, even before mass communication, is anything that provides information can provide disinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and ideologies are constituted by the reproduction of oppressive ideas, and it's the apparatuses of mass communication which make that all the more effective. So, no, in the book, I don't discuss this this at all. Um, you know, the the banning of of uh, say neo Nazis from our popular platforms hasn't prevented them from associating on on other platforms uh so their their reach is is less but on the other hand they're allowed to associate with one another in an undisturbed fashion and and they're not open to external influences in virtue of that i i really don't know how these things should be handled but are you are you in favor of punching richard spencer in the face (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if I thought it did anything, yes, but I don't think it does anything. Do you think it doesn't? I don't know. I, I think that probably cowed so him a little bit. A good laugh and 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 <laughs> allows Richard Spencer to to be a victim. <laughs> it's a nice. I mean, it is a symbol. You know that it, it kind of deflates the 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 symbol of the machismo. You know, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was a comic in the 1940s, right? Captain America punching Hitler, right? Yeah. Um, well, and you know, we speaking of, of Charlottesville and the, the killing of, of socialists or anarchists and, uh, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, of course, um, murdering people. Uh, politically, you know, uh, you, you say that, that psychological... Um, you know, belief in, in racial hierarchy and so forth is often a product that's structured by by political propaganda and ideology. How, how does that then fold into the uh, demonization of socialist anarchists and others who would seek to emancipate and, and kind of uh, throw off the oppression of those racialized groups? I'm not sure what you mean by how does it fold in. I mean, that's that's well, a standard well, I, fascist I, right. position. Well, because I, I, I assume that, that when, um, you know, uh, the car was running over the, 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 the poor victim in Charlottesville that, that she was not seen as human uh, either, possibly, right? Uh, I, I'm just, I'm just cur- curious how, how the kind of uh, white supremacist ideology or, or you know, uh, if it's expansive enough to, to extend beyond the racial categories to the supporters of, of those, um, you know, seen as less than human. Well, of course, but... but- I, I don't think we can really segregate them too too well. I mean, if you really look at the the white supremacist um, propaganda, it's the Jews, mm-hmm. right? The Jews are yeah. the architect of all this stuff, right. and this is like during the Third Reich: the com- communist equals Jews, right? right. So, yeah. so race yeah. comes in the back door there. Although even in the camps, though, they had categories of people that were more or less, right? Like even within the camps. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so how should we think about maybe focusing more on the, on the resistance part as skeptical and, and kind of pessimistic as we might be? Uh, maybe we can reclaim Gramsci's uh, optimism of the, of the will, even if we have the pessimism of the intellect. Uh, well, what are some things we should think about in terms of resisting uh, you know, the, these, these dehumanization forces? Right. So resistance can't be entirely external. It has to be internal as well. Um, so I, I think there are a number of factors. One is understanding enough about ourselves. Because there isn't any vaccine here. Right. It's like COVID. You can't get a shot and you're immune from from racism and dehumanization. And if there was, they wouldn't take it, right? Oh, it would not be distributed. It would not be in the interest of certain people to, <laughs> to make this available. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so we, have to, we have to be able to recognize our own vulnerability, right? One of the ways to, that helps this, apart, quite apart from learning the factors in human psychology that allow us to be vigilant with ourselves, and this is all of us, is a proper understanding of history. Um, now, this is a particular problem in the United States because the peculiarities of our history have been such that especially white America has been able to maintain certain illusions about about the nature of our history. Um, and it's not part of 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 young people's education. I know this. I mean, I teach a course on race and racism. I get, you know, undergraduates coming to my class and they have what I call the cartoon version of the history of race. Um, 
And my first stop is to disabuse them of that. And that makes them really realize, gosh, this is something we really, really need to get a hold of. This is just so bad. If, if you understand historically uh, that what we have done and what we have believed, then you, in virtue of that, know that it's possible. And maybe we're doing it now. And if we're not doing it now, maybe we'll do it in the future. So it inculcates a kind of attitude of acceptance and humility there. Mm, mm, mm. That's, that's, that's inward looking. Outward looking, well, here's one factor which I didn't emphasize enough in the book, and I think it's really, really important. People are most receptive to dehumanizing propaganda when they feel vulnerable. And the, the, the propaganda simply exacerbates that sense of helplessness. Right. So creating social conditions in which people do not feel vulnerable, that they have health care, that they can make a decent living and so on and so forth. I think that's actually the very best safeguard against these sorts of things. Apart from that, of course, are all the efforts to achieve this. Mm. Yeah. By voting. Absolutely. As was just demonstrated, certainly the far lesser of evils. Um. Uh, supporting institutions that that can protect us, but also can harm us. You know, a, a free press can also be harnessed by dehumanizers, yes. and a judiciary can be harnessed by dehumanizers. We've seen that again and again in history. But we need that. We need those protections. Um, so there, there, there are a whole range of things. But of all of those things, all of those things. My position now is creating social circumstances in which people are not desperate and vulnerable and yearning for salvation mm-hmm. is the best. I think it makes a lot of sense. If we abolish capitalism, then maybe we have a chance. We have a chance. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah. Right? right? <laughs> it surely can't be a coincidence that, that, that Hitler came to power when unemployment in Germany was 30%. Oh, it was yeah. very helpful. You know, they struggled years before. They didn't get big majorities. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's not the whole story, but it's the big part of the story, maybe the decisive part in that case. And yeah, well, and of, of this- people that are that are fat and happy and have lots of lots of, you know, surplus to go around, they're more willing to say, "Ah, refugees, yeah, come on in." And not like, you "Oh, know, refugees, pe- let's like- kill them all." <laughs> people really like to uh at least in the circles that we run in, like to uh, poo-poo the the kind of parallel to, to Weimar Germany and and discount the the fact that neoliberals did really create the kind of space in which the fascists could rise. But but I, I mean that dynamic seems to me a really obvious one, That's right? Like totally the, obvious. It's total. It's completely obvious. Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm hoping for the left we can get past because there is this problem. Uh, where, where you have infighting amongst people who don't want to, um, you know, bring in the racists into the coalition, or they're concerned that if we just focus on economic issues, then that that will in in, in some way be um, kind of anathema to those that want to focus on um, on racism per se. But but as you suggest, these things go together and and should be be thought of as connected, right? Oh yeah, we can't segregate the world in in the way that some people seem to think we we can. Yeah, no, these are all connected. And and we really need to be focused on what we're trying to achieve. 
rather than simply, you know, what gives us that warm glow of of self righteousness? What's the problem? What's the outcome? And if if as you suggest, it's the oppression leads to the racialization that leads to the dehumanization. If we if we remove the the, the kind of conditions that allow for oppress, oppression to take place for for power, like if we democratize power in a way that doesn't make it easy for people to actually use ideology to then you know capture more power and dominate and so forth, it seems like that might be getting at the kind of root of the problem, the beginning of the, of the origins, maybe. I, I don't know if it gets at the root, but I, it's certainly important. You'll see in my next book, I have a, I have a peculiar theory of, of ideology, and there's an extended case study. Uh, so there's a theoretical chapter about ideology, and there's an extended case study of the racialization and dehumanization of Jews over 800 years. And one of the problems with these things is once things get ideologically embedded they, they have remarkable staying power. Mm-hmm. You know, they can bubble away below the surface and you just get a change in the social ecology like massive unemployment, a mm-hmm. war, and bang, they're back out, right? So yeah, I, think, I think we should content ourselves or at least aspire to constraining these forces uh, because abolishing them takes a long, long, long time. Oh, interesting. I did notice, and not, not to give away the next book, but a very interesting take on what ideology is, because it seems a, a completely uh, negative notion of ideology that functions to, to oppress exclusively, right? And, that, and that's very interesting to me, because then I wonder, because I see, obviously, how reification could lead to these issues, right? Of course. Um, but But then... What then uh, do you say to the Marxists or the anarchists or those who think their ideological frameworks are helping them to uh, emancipate? Oh, they're just using ide- the word in a different way. Ideology is like dehumanization. Okay. It's all over the Gosh. map. <laughs> yeah. So just like with dehumanization, if you're talking about ideology, you need to say right at the beginning, what this is what I mean. Okay. You might mean sure. something different. I'm cool with that. But this is what I mean. And we don't Gosh. need to fight about the proper definition of the word. Wonderful. That makes sense. Well, yeah, I was going to raise that question too because I, I have a book that's coming out and it uses ideology in a very different way, but I define it very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> that's the key. That's the key. Wonderful. Um, but yeah, that's all the questions I had. Any any uh, final comments before we let you go, David? No, it's a great conversation. You made me think, which is a it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> wonderful. Well, it's been a pleasure. It was we, it was really... fun and stimulating. We hope you come back uh, at least for your next book, but anytime you'd like to come on and, and hey, talk. We you just it. shoot me an email and I'm there. Okay. Oh, well, be careful. Being, being essentialized as a Greek, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm, I'm very gregarious because of my Greekness. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure. Uh, once again, for everyone, the, the book is on inhumanity, dehumanization and how to resist it. A wonderful book. We didn't even get to mention the, the kind of poignant, beautifully uh, wrought stories, both personal and historical. So uh, it is an extremely brilliant uh, condensation of a lot of uh, theoretical, historical, uh, psychological, and other disciplinary works, but also uh, very moving and uh, a delight to read. So we really hope that that everyone um, that can uh, buys and reads it because I think it would be good uh, for, for serving humanity. So thank you again, David. 
Oh, thank you. That was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and just a final correction, Alexia. I think you meant to say uh, "In on Humanity." That's the name of the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> words, thanks for coming words, on, David. Words. Yeah, and thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, guys. Good night.